Okay. So the class this evening is just an introduction to Catholic morality. And let me give you an overview as to why I even include this. The reason I include this in, in RCIA class is because when I was in high school, I had a religion class when I was 16 years old. And in the course of about three classes, the teacher explained why Catholics believe what they do about morality. And personally for me, it was so eye-opening. It changed all of my thinking. And that's what I'm trying to capture for you right here. Uh, just one little class that hopefully will impart to you one or two ideas that will change the way you think uh, about morality. Let me give you a, a summary of the problem and the solution of morality. The problem began back in the Garden of Eden. Go back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, they've got this great relationship with God. God is their father. It's a love relationship. It's based on trust, based on love. Uh, and then they sin. And something happens to them after they sin. They stop trusting God. They start thinking of God as someone who's trying to keep them from what is good rather than someone who's trying to lead them to what is good. They see God as an adversary, as a, a domineering tyrant. They hide from God. Very first thing Adam and Eve do, they hide. And God goes looking for them. Where are you hiding? Of course, God knows where they are. But the point of the story is sin makes us run away from God, not God run away from us. God starts hunting us down, looking for us. And then the solution, you see that in the story of the prodigal son. Everybody know the story of the prodigal son? And the prodigal goes to his father very much like the sinful fallen human person goes to their heavenly father. And they say, give me what's coming to me. And we try to claim things that God was intended to give us all along out of their rightful order. In fact, I could, I could say that much of, much of what a sin is, is taking something good and taking it out of its rightful place. Using it, I should say misusing it, not in the way God intended. Sometimes a good analogy for that is a fire. A fire is a really wonderful thing as long as it's in a fireplace. Okay? It's not a wonderful thing when it's out of a fireplace. It's very dangerous. Similarly, God's will for us is many, many good things, but, but they have their place. And when sin, we want to grasp them from ourselves. Well, you know, the prodigal, he reconciles himself to God. He, he reconciles himself to, 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 his, to his father, uh, after coming to see the error of his ways and his father embraces him and restores the unity that they were always meant to have. Well, that's what Jesus did for us. He restored the unity we were always meant to have with our heavenly father. Now, what we want to do is we want to see that in morality, okay? Um, because very often morality, when I say morality, people immediately tense up and think, oh no, what am I going to be told about what I'm no longer allowed to do what am I going to be told uh, about things that, that, that now suddenly they're going to be cramping my style, right? Getting in the way of the way I want to live. But the fundamental approach that I would like to try to share with you on morality is that it's good news. It's truth that sets you free, okay? So let's take a look at this right here. What we begin by looking at is we say that Catholic morality recognizes, first of all, a human being has a design and a purpose. You don't often think of yourself as having a purpose, and having a design, but you do. Okay, somewhere down here I've got this. Your purpose and your design is to know the truth and to love. And to love, by love I mean 
you're giving yourself selflessly, sacrificially for the good of others in a self-forgetful manner. That's what love is. That's the way we're always supposed to be. That's what you're made for. If you don't live in accordance with that, you won't be happy. I have a friend uh, who tells me that he's saving up to buy a boat and sail the world. This is his dream. Circumnavigate the globe in a sailboat. And he's dedicating a lot of his time and effort to this. And on the side, I'm trying to tell him, you know, that's a neat little hobby, but it's, you weren't made for that. That's not what you were created for. It's not what you were born for. You're not going to find happiness sailing the globe. You're going to find happiness dedicating yourself to your wife, dedicating yourself to your children, dedicating yourself to your family, all kinds of unglamorous, sacrificial things because that's our design and purpose. Okay? We're made for love. And I say by analogy, imagine the design of a car. If you want a car to run well, follow the owner's manual. The car has a purpose. The car has a design. And it must be respected. When we respect the truth of what, how we're made, we flourish. And all, mora, all morality is ordered towards building us towards that end. Okay? Um, we also suffer when we don't act in accordance with that end. It, it causes people to be unhappy and conflicts and um, these are all the things that, that lead to, lead to, lead to our, 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 our unhappiness. So ultimately morality tells us what good is and why you should freely choose it. Now there's a problem that we have encountered um, uh, it took several several years for this to, to unfold um, and I'd like to try to summarize it as, as what's happened since Vatican II. Do you know what Vatican II is? Anybody not know what Vatican II is? Okay, Vatican II was a council of the church. Uh, they met from 1963 to 1965. Do you know what a church council is? Do you not know what a church council is? Okay, very, very briefly, a church council is when all the bishops of the world come together, together with the Pope, and they hammer out some questions, and they try to come to answers of things. You know the creed we say at Mass? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. That came from a church council. Anybody know what church council it came from? It was called Nicaea. The year was 325 AD. Um, much, of what we, much of what we believe and understand has been hammered out by councils. Because the, they said, we've got, a, we've got a universal uncertainty here. Let's talk it through. Ask for the guidance of the Holy Spirit and come to a consensus about what, 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 what it is that we actually believe. Well, Vatican II met in the 60s. And you could say that Vatican II was a response to the Enlightenment. Everybody know what the Enlightenment is? Oh, I don't want to get too far afield here, but um, there's lots of things I could say about the Enlightenment. Fundamental principle of the Enlightenment is that man is the center of the universe, not God. Um, that man's fulfillment is, is greatest when God is seen as optional or unnecessary. That the only thing that's real is material, not spiritual. I don't want to get too far afield here, but um, the Enlightenment it did many, many things uh, to us. The Enlightenment gave a scientific method. The, it would only, because of the Enlightenment, um, in the 17, the 1600s, 1700s, we began to have universal doubt, and this is where the scientific method came from. You know the scientific method: assume nothing, test all hypotheses, draw conclusions. That's the scientific method. Begin with radical doubt. No presuppositions, no dogmas, no faith. Don't, don't trust anything whatsoever. And, and then test all, test all theories. 
and draw conclusions. Well, the scientific method works great as long as you're dealing with merely material things. Scientific method gave us modern medicine. Scientific method gave us the iPhone. The scientific method sent us to the moon and back. But if you're dealing with things that aren't material, like love and truth and beauty, um, to assume nothing and to test everything uh, can lead to a real disaster. If you want to know what this looks, looks like, take, take a walk through the, um, through the east wing of the National Gallery of Art downtown in D.C. And, and you, know, you will find works of modern art that they're, they're confused, they're ugly. I mean, I don't want to get too far afield here, but starting with radical doubt works great with material things, but it doesn't work great with, with spiritual things. So Vatican II met, and, and essentially they, they, they addressed issues brought up by the Enlightenment. That's Vatican II. Okay. I don't want to get too far. I could go on and on about that for probably a whole hour just on that. But um, one of the things Vatican II wanted to straighten out was the way morality was taught. Okay? Because nobody had a bad intention, but for years, morality was taught in a manner that isolated it from the rest of our faith relationship to Christ. Okay? It was seen as a series of do's and don'ts that just rested on authority without any deeper explanation or deeper reason. Okay? So you can understand how this might have been necessary and helpful. Uh, perhaps um, you're dealing with harshly educated people and a priest who's itinerant and on his horseback is going from village to village and it's the middle of the 19th century and he doesn't have time to get into all the reasons. He just tells people this is moral and this is not. Okay? And for a lot, of, a lot of years, morality was essentially taught that way. This is right and this is wrong. Well, it led to some misunderstandings. Now listen, don't get me wrong. I can, I can teach morality in terms of right and wrong. And I can say, just trust me. Okay? And I cannot mislead you. I really, I really could. I could tell you entirely do's and don'ts and not mislead you at all. But that's not enough for you. You need to understand the why. And here's why you need to understand the why. Because if you, don't, if you just trust authority alone, it's, it makes it look like there's not a deeper reason. So I give you here your example... I say, if, if God's authority alone is the source of moral right and wrong, question, can God take away one of the commandments? I mean, he gave them. Can he take one away? Can God say there's only nine? Sure. Yeah, you'd, you'd be tempted to think so. I'm going to tell you the answer is no. And I hope I can explain to you why. Okay? God can't come along and say, from now on, thou shalt commit adultery. It's now okay. Thou shalt lie. It's now okay. And not only be, it, it, it's not that, he can't. It's just that it's against his nature because it's against the nature of the truth of who God is and who we are. Okay? So do you see the deeper reason here? The deeper reason here is, uh, as I hope to explain, if all you see is somebody's authority, it's wrong because I said so. That's, some, that's sometimes known as voluntarism from the Latin word voluntas, which means will. The validity of a moral principle is solely in the will of somebody else. It's right or wrong just because God said so. But there's nothing deeper about it. There's nothing about what's truly good. There's nothing about what's truly good for you. And what the trouble is, if you, can, if you accept legalism, right? if you accept voluntarism, you, you lead to legalism. And legalism is merely keeping the rules. Now, what's the matter with merely keeping the rules? Morally speaking, there's nothing the matter except for this. What happens to love when all you're doing is keeping rules? Okay, let's take a love relationship between two people. Can I reduce it to rules? Can I do that? I cannot, can I? Isn't love much more than just keeping rules? It must be. Um, 
I, I mean, there, there are certain rules maybe of the household and may they might be expressed in love, but you want to understand the deeper motive of love that made those rules possible. You're not really understanding where the rule came from. Okay, so voluntarism leads to legalism. Does that make sense? Okay, the trouble with legalism is it leads to minimalism because if you think there's just a rule, then the next question is how far can I go, right? How far can I go before I break the rule? Um, without seeing any reason for what you're doing, you start saying, what's the least I have to do? Now what's happened to the love of your heart? Where's the love when you're asking, what's the least I have to do? Okay, my wife's having a birthday. What's the least I have to get her so that she'll stick with me for another year, right? Um, Christmas is coming. What's the least amount of time I have to spend with these family members of mine before I can get back to the football game. Well, where's the love? It's no longer present. This is the trouble with not understanding the deeper reason for why we believe what we believe. Does that make sense? That's what I'm trying to share with you, okay? Because love, as you hopefully know and don't need any further explanation, always asks, what more can I do for you? This is the fullness of our vocation in Christ. We want to look upon one another, upon God, as in a love relationship, this is how much more can I do? Now, what we want to do is try to tie morality into that love. And that's my, that's my endeavor here this evening, okay? Um, okay, so historically speaking, this has been caused by a division in moral thinking, and I hinted on it before, okay? Uh, Renaissance humanists, do you know what I mean by Renaissance humanists? Sometimes I'll throw these terms out. Renaissance, what, what, what period of history are we talking about? 1500s, 1600s, okay? Humanists. Do you know what a humanist is? Okay. Uh, it's an Enlightenment thinker um, who essentially is taking God out of central place, like it had been for all these centuries, and putting them off to the side. Okay, that's what I mean by Renaissance humanists. I, I can't get too far afield here in, in, theology, in, in philosophy, but I hope some of this sticks. And a Renaissance humanist begins to see man's fulfillment as being possible in this world alone without God at all. Take a walk through, um, say, a, uh, a classical art gallery. Okay? So I was walking through a classical art gallery in Spain, and it was ordered chronologically. And as you see the paintings on the walls, they're all about God. God and Jesus and Mary and angels and God, God, God. And up around 1500, 1600, suddenly God disappears from the art. And it becomes beautiful nature scenes. Uh, pictures of sunrises, pictures of sunsets. Nothing wrong with sunrises or sunsets, but you see what's happened there? The art has begun to reflect what's happening in the culture. God is no longer seen as central. That's Renaissance humanism. And they begin to think that your fulfillment is possible in this world alone. And this is deeply in our own thought. I hope I don't need to convince you, but I'll just state this as being the case. You'll never find your perfect fulfillment of your soul in this world alone. Did I ever tell you the story of St. Augustine's um, quickie, short test whether you're on your way to heaven or hell? No. I always ask you because I hate to repeat myself. But I'll paraphrase him, okay? He says, let's pretend like God appears to you in a whirlwind at night. and says, I got a proposition for you, uh, Ellie. Um, I'll let you live on this earth forever and ever and ever. You'll never get sick. You'll never grow old. You'll never die. And you can have anything you want. Look any way you want, all the money you want, all the success you want. 
And, and you can have this forever and ever and ever, but there's one catch. If you say yes, you'll never, ever be able to see me in the face or be with me. What do you say? And your answer from a Christian would be, no way. And the reason why you say no way is because I can't ever find happiness by just what this world has to offer. It's not enough. There was a song a bunch of years back by a band called Switchfoot. And the song was, we want more than this world has to offer. And I thought, here's this, here's this secular singer who's expressing a deep moral truth. We do want more than this world has to offer. So a Renaissance humanist said, your fulfillment is in this world alone. Well, Protestant reformers like Calvin and Luther and Zwingli overemphasized the depravity of mankind, total depravity. I don't want to get too, too far afield into their theology, but they'd say earthly life doesn't have any value. It's all about heaven, so put up with this earth, get to heaven, the, the earth is corrupt and heaven is where you belong. Well, we don't believe that's true either. We believe this earth is fundamentally good. It's just not what God meant it to be. It's been scarred by sin and it's not enough. Okay, so what we say as Catholics here is God's will isn't a choice either between your fulfillment in this world or throwing it all out, white knuckling and hanging on until heaven. Okay? What I'd like to say is the way to heaven is heavenly and the way to hell is hellish. Okay? And, by, and, this, and I hope this is makes, again, this is so, so brief what I'm giving you here this evening, but I hope some of it clicks. That's my whole endeavor. God's will is not arbitrary. What he calls good is actually good for you. And what he calls evil is actually evil. In other words, it leads to your real happiness, your real fulfillment. What he calls evil actually leads to your destruction. Uh, case in point, um, a saint who said yes to God might suffer greatly for it. He might end up in prison. Many saints have. He might end up in prison and find his way marching off to the gallows to have his head lopped off because he won't violate God's commandments as many saints have. St. Saint Paul, for example, right? St. Thomas More, I can go on and on. And you could say that's not a very good thing. But what, I'm, what I would like to share with you is his yes to God makes him happier in his soul, even in that position, than the person who said no to God and he's right now, uh, I don't know, in a brothel somewhere. Um, not suffering in the body, but suffering deeply in the soul. Deep torments of self-hatred, stabs of conscience, knowing he's done the wrong thing. The way to heaven is heavenly. It doesn't mean that it's not without sufferings. The way to hell is hellish. It doesn't mean that it's not without its pleasures, but at a deeper level, okay? What God wills, wills, he wills for our good. And this is why he gives us his commandments. And what leads to our destruction is what he calls evil. Okay. So how do we know what's good and what's wrong? Well, he's given us an intellect and he's given us a free will. I've mentioned this before, okay? I've said this before. It bears repeating again. I said, you're made in God's image. And what does that mean? It means you got an intellect and you got a will. That's what it means. God's image means that like God, you've got a mind that can know the truth. Now, a dog doesn't have a mind that can know the truth. It's got some kind of in intelligence going on there. I mean, they're not dumb, right? But it's not like they can abstract the truth. You can't argue with them. You can't reason with them. You've got a will that can love and choose what's good. An animal might show some level of affection, um, but only a human being can choose to love an enemy, right? Or choose to do something that's difficult for them for the good of somebody else. That's what it means that you're made in God's image. Now, moral theology is the study of how we use our intellect and our freedom 
to choose what's good and follow the plan established, God has established for us. Okay, there's two sources of what we would call moral activity. One is reason and one is revelation. We've talked about this before. Reason. You can know things based just on your reason about what's right and what's wrong. I can tell you, uh, and I don't need any faith to believe it, thou shalt not commit adultery. If you're open-minded and you see the truth, I told you about how, you know, when I was a boy growing up, I lived next to the Crow Indians reservations. Remember the punishment for adultery among the Crow? It chopped off your nose. Didn't kill you, but it sent a message that this tribe won't survive if people behave like this. Okay? You don't need divine revelation to know thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not lie. Right? We, reason is perfectly reasonable. We do need divine revelation, though, for much of what God has told us about what it means to be a human being, and such as love of your enemies, doing good to those who persecute you, acting in the love of God. You can't know that based on just your reason. Just your reason will lead you to love your friends and hate your enemies. God will tell you something more. So where do we get our morality? Two things, reason and revelation. Okay, so we do trust all that stuff I said about revelation. Let me tell you about real quickly reason and what we mean when we say natural law. It's a phrase that's greatly misunderstood. Here's what we mean by natural law. Here's what it means, very simply. That things in the world have a nature. Plants have a nature. Birds have a nature. Fish have a nature. Human beings have a nature. The law is when you treat them in accordance with their nature, they flourish. When you don't treat them in accordance with their nature, they don't flourish. So what's the nature of a plant? Well, Take a look at a plant and see what it needs. It needs sunlight, right? It needs water. It needs soil. Well, if you want the plant to flourish, you've got to treat it in accordance with its nature. That's the law of nature. That's natural law. If you take the plant and put it in the shade or take it out of the sun or you put it in a pot full of cherry-flavored pez, it will wither and die because you're breaking the law of nature, so to speak, right? Um, Oil spill in the Gulf of Alaska and all kinds of birds get sick and die. Well, natural law has been violated. Birds weren't meant to swim in oil. You know, they were meant to fly in air and swim in water and nest in trees. Okay? So you want something to act in accordance with its nature, treat it in accordance with its nature. And this is true for us too. Okay? Um, now, you take your mind, you take your will, uh, you use them together, and we call that free choice. And what I would like to tell you is, and I know I'm throwing huge concepts at you, but moral good and moral evil come from free choice. They don't come from accidents. They don't come from temptations. They don't come from mistakes. They come from free choice. The more free you are, the more moral something is. Okay? The less free you are, the less, morally speaking, the less, the less it actually registers. Okay? So sometimes people will tell me, let's say, Father, Father, I tried so hard to get to church but my temperature was 102 and I fainted on the way to the car and I passed out on my living room floor and I didn't make it to church. And I'm so sorry for what I did. And I say, God bless you. You, you actually tried to get to church when you had 102 temperature. First of all, next time that happens, stay home. Okay? Um, but secondly, look, just, look at, look, just look at what your free will did. You, you, you had an idea in your mind of what to do and you pushed yourself to the limit trying to do it. That's great. Freedom and, and moral good and evil are based on how much you use your freedom and how much you use your will, okay? How much you use your mind, how much you use your will. Now, there is evil that's not moral, natural disasters, hurricanes, earthquakes. Are they evil? They're evil in the sense that they aren't good, but they're not evil in the sense that somebody chose something wrong, okay? Everybody understand that distinction? 
It's a non-moral evil. We're talking about moral evils. The moral evil is what you choose. Okay? And what we say is, it's in the soul of a human person. Now, here's an idea for you. You are, at this moment, every last one of you, morally speaking, you are the sum total of every free decision you've ever made. That's what you are, morally speaking. Okay? You've had freedom all your life long. You've made, you've made decisions. Your decisions have made you into who you are. What you have freely chosen, you have become. So let's say that you freely choose to tell the truth. And you do it over and over and over and over again. You become a truthful person. You'd really have to work hard to tell a lie. But you notice the, the opposite also works. Let's say that you readily give in to the temptation to be false or deceptive. And next thing you know, you're telling untruth. They're slipping out of your mouth and you say, how did that happen? I didn't even mean to tell a lie and out came the lie. Or out came the exaggeration. You've become a fibber. You've become someone who isn't truthful. How'd you do it? By repeated choice. Okay? You are right now the sum total of all you've ever chosen. Now, you can change that. Right? You're not destined or cast in stone, but you do carry within you all the residue of all those past decisions. And they, they, they're chained to you. And, 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 they, and they weigh you down. Okay? Um, so I, I give you here the definitions of virtues and vices. A virtue. It's the residue of previous good actions and the disposition to repeat them. A vice. is the residue of previous bad actions and the disposition to repeat them. They're habits. Okay? They're habits. And here's my, uh, here's my example. Have I, ever given the, have I ever given you the $100 bill on the desk example? Okay. $100 bill sits on a desk in an empty room. You walk through the room. You see that $100 bill sitting on the desk. And I'm just going to take this for granted that none of you are tempted to steal that money. I'm just going to take that for granted. Here's hoping that none of you are tempted to steal that money. But did you recognize somebody somewhere lost 100 bucks? Your next thought is, what can I do with this bill to try to somehow get it back to its original owner. I mean, somebody somewhere is really worried about this. Effortlessly, you do that. Okay? Let's con- contrast that with somebody else who sees the $100 bill on the desk and says, Drat, that's 100 bucks. I sure could use that. Struggles, strains, agonizes, sweats bullets, and finally, after a titanic effort, decides to try to find the original owner of that $100 bill. Which of the two of those people has more merit before God for the choice they've just made. You'd think it's the one who struggled. And what I would like to tell you is that it's the first one. Here's why. Because the guy who didn't have to struggle only was able to do what he did because he had a lifetime of building up the right decisions. Let me give you a parallel case, okay? Two runners run a race, a 10K. One runs the race, 10K, not too difficult. The other runs the race. He's crawling across the finish line. Which of them's in better shape? The guy who ran the race without sweating. And how did he get that way? A lifetime, or many, many years, lots of effort. Okay? So similarly, that's my, my, my point in saying that is that all of us right now are either carrying around virtues or vices. And, and, and don't be surprised when they're hard to change vices. Um, it's okay. Uh, but, but, but that's... You know, part of the snapshot of who you are. It's your character. It's your identity, morally speaking. Okay, So that's what we're choosing. We're having our intellect. We're having our free will. Using our reason, using what God has given us, try to choose what's good. Because God's trying to lead us to what's good. He's not trying to hurt us. He's not trying to hold us back or cramp our style. Let's talk about conscience for just a moment. okay? Because conscience kicks in here. 
thing I like to tell and understand about conscience is that conscience is a judgment, it's not a feeling. You ever heard it said conscience is the last refuge of a scoundrel? No? Anyway, you, you know what I mean when I say that, right? It's a, it's a sarcastic statement. The statement being that someone who wants to do wrong and knows they're doing wrong will sometimes justify doing wrong by saying, well, I was following my conscience, right? That's why they say sometimes conscience is the last refuge of a scoundrel. That's a misunderstanding of conscience. Conscience isn't a feeling. It's a judgment. Deep down in the depths of your soul, there's something that you can't deny that's telling you, this is good and I should do this, or this is wrong and I, and I, and I should avoid doing it. That's your conscience. Then you have a choice to make. Do you obey it or do you disobey it? That's what conscience is. Okay, so conscience is a judgment. Um, conscience doesn't decide what's true, but it does detect it. And then you've got a free decision to make. Okay? You're going to obey that and choose what's right, or you're going to disobey that and choose what's wrong. Now, the important thing to understand about conscience is that it's not infallible. You've got a, you've got a responsibility to form your conscience, to learn. And this is incumbent upon all of you. See, here, here you all are at a class being taught by a priest. God bless you. You're forming your conscience. You're learning. Um, I continually form my conscience on all kinds of things. I'm still learning. And people ask me advice on stuff and I'll say sometimes to you, okay, the best I understand, God have mercy if I'm a, on me if I'm wrong, but the best I understand is you want to do X, Y, and Z rather than A, B, and C. And then I'll go look it up and I'll read and I'll try to find out whether I was right about that, okay? So you want to inform your conscience. You have to, you have to try to, you try to, try to um, teach your conscience. You know, the image that I like to use, you're out in the woods and you're hunting a bear. You hear a rustling in the woods. Is it a bear or is it a hunter? Well, you don't shoot until you know Right? You, you want to learn. You want to, try to, you want to try to form that conscience. And, and we say we form it according to what the church teaches us. Again, this follows naturally from what we believe the church to be. Founded by Christ, guided by the Holy Spirit. And the way I'd like to try to understand the teachings of the church are they're very specific applications of reason and revelation. Okay? And they apply to a particular act or to a particular circumstance. So, for example, Jesus didn't say anything about assault weapons. Jesus didn't say anything about nuclear war, but does that mean God has nothing to say about these issues? Okay. The church, part of its, its value to us is that we believe that it's continuing to guide us by the, by, not by man's authority, but by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Okay. To help us continue to know, even in our own time, even in our own circumstances, what's good for us and for our society and for our soul and for eternal happiness. Okay. This is the formation of your conscience. Um, and as I, I got here, a little side note here that, you know, if you don't form your conscience, um, what you think is good ends up being harmful to somebody else. One man's freedom is somebody else's slavery. But you must choose this. You must decide to choose. So you continue to learn. And there's so many resources out there. You, it's, it's really, really wonderful. There's so many resources out there to help you to form your conscience online. And so, um, you know, be, if you would, please take, my, please take my encouragement to become a lifelong student of what Jesus is asking of us because it'll only set you more and more free. Fair warning, the more you learn, the more God's going to ask of you. And it can be very intimidating at times. You might feel like God's trying to encroach on your freedom. But that's why I began by giving you the story of Adam and Eve and the, 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 the prodigal. I'm like, no, he's actually trying to set you free. It can be hard. Uh, um, but but be, be a lifelong former of your conscience, okay? Okay. Um, you are guilty for acting in deliberate ignorance. If you could have known the truth and you didn't learn the truth, 
It's not an excuse. So, for example, um, uh, we deliberately cripple your freedom or your, your will. Is it ever a valid excuse for somebody to say, I'm not guilty, I was drunk? Why is that not a valid excuse? Because you chose to get drunk. You chose to put yourself in an impaired state. Therefore, you chose to put yourself in a position where you can make wrong decisions. Okay, similarly, um, if you could have learned the truth but you chose not to, um, that's not going to cut it with your relationship with Christ or on Judgment Day for that matter, okay? So we, we, this is what C.S. Lewis once called the weight of glory. We've got, a, we've got this weight bearing upon us that we didn't ask for, and it's God calling us to something higher. So please, take your steps to learn, all right? Um, so here's my, kind of my summary statement here. To understand Catholic morality, understand there's an intrinsic connection between God's plan and your fulfillment. What is morally good? What actually leads to your real human fulfillment and the fulfillment of other people? And what's morally evil? It's what damages it or what harms it, Okay. Human nature, it's based on human nature which doesn't change, which is why morality doesn't change either. We'll never have a time in which we say, thou shalt commit adultery. Um, Now, there's tons of nuances and complexities to moral theology. Tons of them. Um, And I can't possibly even get near near to going into them all. Um, But I can give you just a couple of overviews here that I hope you find helpful. Okay? One is what makes an action good. And the other is a subject of cooperation with evil. Okay, just oh, just an overview. When we say what makes, an, makes what makes an action good, we talk about three things: an object, an end, and a circumstance. Right? An object means the action itself that you're doing. An end means the reason why you're doing it. For an action to be good, what you do and why you do it both have to be good. Okay. So, for example, a bad action doesn't become a good action just because you've got a good motive. Um. Robbing from the rich and stealing, robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. God bless you, you've got a great motive, but it's still robbing. Okay? Uh, committing adultery because you're in love. Uh, God bless you for being in love, but it's still, you know, it's still adultery. Whatever the case might be, the object itself can't be a bad thing. The ends don't justify the means. All the best motives in the world can't make a wrong thing right. It's still a wrong thing. Does that make sense? Okay, that's one. That's one. But also, the reason why you're doing it has to be good. A bad motive can make a good action into a bad action. Consider the case of the one who donates to charity just to impress somebody else. I guess it's good that he donated to charity. The action's still good, but the motive was bad. Does he get praised or blamed for doing that? He gets blamed. He gets called a showboat or a hypocrite. Instinctively, we know... God bless you, you gave to the poor, isn't that good? But boy, you had bad motives, and you get blamed for it. You know, uh, politicians who, I don't know, um, um, I I went to college in New Hampshire, where they have the New Hampshire primary. Everybody's heard of the New Hampshire primary. Well, I saw all the presidential candidates going through New Hampshire, and it was fascinating. was to watch the difference between how they acted when the cameras were on and when the cameras were off. I literally saw a candidate, I won't name who he is, who was shaking hands with a student in mid-conversation, but when they turned off the camera, he cut the conversation and walked away, right there on the spot. Was he doing something morally good? No. God bless him. He was doing the right thing for the wrong reason. See how the the end and the object both have to be good? So far, so good. Okay, circumstances. Let's talk about circumstances. Circumstances don't change wrong things into right things. We are not circumstantial moralists. What circumstances do is they make right things either more right or more praiseworthy or less right or less praiseworthy. 
or they make wrong things more wrong and more blameworthy or less wrong and less blameworthy. Clear example for you. Stealing. It's a bad thing. I don't care what your motive is. Okay? And again, you can, get into, you can get into nuances here about you know, stealing to save your starving family, etc. I don't want to get that detailed. Okay? Let's talk about stealing and you're not saving your starving family. You're just stealing. You're just shoplifting. Okay? Uh, does it matter whether you're shoplifting a bag of Fritos or whether you're shoplifting and you're, you're, hij- you're, you're carjacking? It's still, they're both stealing, but the circumstances do matter, don't they? A wrong action has just become much more wrong. The clearest example of this is money. Is it wrong to steal $5? Yes. Is it wrong to steal $5,000? Yes. They're both wrong, but the circumstances have just made it much more wrong because of how what was involved. And similarly, that, that, that works with, with good actions as well. Okay? So uh, someone was uh, uh, honest... Um, uh, in a way in, in, in which they would, they would pay a great personal price for it, it's much more praiseworthy than the one who's honest and they'll be applauded for it. Honesty is always good, but the circumstances can make something truly heroic or not. But it doesn't change wrong into right or right into wrong. Does that make sense? That's how we understand circumstances. Okay. Um, so far, so good? Okay. Circumstances can, can, and I think the most important takeaway from that, practically speaking, is circumstances can greatly mitigate guilt. Let's talk about the soldier in Vietnam. Uh, his life is on the line. He's constantly in danger. Here's a rustling in the woods. He knows he's coming from the wrong side of the woods. He doesn't have any buddies over there. He's got a split-second decision. Should he shoot or should he not shoot? He shoots. Turns out it's an innocent civilian. Did he do the wrong thing? Yes. He did the wrong thing. Uh, he did it for the right motive. It was still bad. He feels bad. His officers feel bad. The United States Army feels bad. Everybody feels bad. But how guilty is he for it? Not terribly guilty. Split-second decision, life is on the line, such circumstances of war. See how circumstances, they don't change the nature of it, but they sure can change the guilt of it. Does that make sense? You've heard like Ruby Ridge and some of these FBI shootouts and that kind of thing, and they've got a, it's half a second to decide whether someone's going to shoot them or not, and they don't know whether to... Anyway, you get the point. That's where circumstances factor in. But, but if you take it to be where it makes wrong right or right wrong, you've misunderstood what circumstances do. Okay. Moral cooperation, here's another one. Moral cooperation is when you're not doing the wrong thing itself, but you are involved in it, okay? Um, let's, say, let's say the issue is abortion, right? And you want to be perfectly pro-life, and then you find out that, you know, your telephone company gives money to Planned Parenthood. And then you find out every telephone company gives money to Planned Parenthood. Does that mean you suddenly have to stop using the telephone? It does not. Why? Because you are a cooperator, right? But you're, there's no free will involved. There's no choosing of it. And there's no free option involved. That's what we call material cooperation. You're cooperating. Yes, somehow you are... Um, oh, I don't know. Let's talk about apartheid in South Africa. Remember that issue? It hasn't been for many, many years. But when I was a teenager, this was the big issue. Apartheid in South Africa. Um, and can you, can you use... I don't know. Can you drink a Coca-Cola? Because Coca-Cola has investments in South Africa. Can you do that? Well, the answer is, yeah, because Pepsi does too, and so does RC, and so does everybody else. There's no option. Your free will isn't involved. You are, however, cooperating in something that's not moral. But you have no will on your part to cooperate with something that's not moral. That's called material cooperation. Sound good? Okay. Formal cooperation is when you cooperate in something that's evil, and you do have an intention to do the evil thing. It goes without saying that's wrong, Okay. I'm going I'm to co-op. But what gets kind of tricky and kind of dicey is how close you are to the evil that's done. So let's talk about that for just a moment. 
Basically, uh, you can be remote, proximate, or immediate from the evil that's being done. I know I'm throwing a lot of terms at you here, but let's talk about the only one that really matters, immediate cooperation. Immediate cooperation is when you don't want to take part in the evil that's involved. However, the evil couldn't happen without your cooperation. The easiest example of that is a getaway car. Okay? So you didn't rob the bank. You didn't want to rob the bank, but you sure did drive the getaway car. Did you do something wrong? Yes, because the crime couldn't have been carried out without you. This is actually kind of the moral questionableness, say, of being a taxi cab driver. Um, let's pretend like there's been a bank robbery and there's sirens going off and there's masked men running out of a bank carrying great big bags with dollar signs on them and they hop into a taxi cab and they say, take us anywhere, anywhere, now and the taxi cab driver drives away. He's just become an essential cooperator in what's gone on. That's immediate cooperation, okay? That you can't do. I don't care whether you agree with it or not. You can't become so integral in the carrying out of the evil action that you do it, even knowing the evil action couldn't have been done without you. You've got to take a stand and step down. So far, so good? That's material cooperation. The difference between material and formal cooperation is do you agree with what's being done? If you agree with the evil that's being done, we call that formal cooperation. Is that right or wrong? That's wrong in every circumstance. If you, do, if you don't agree, we call that material cooperation. Is it right or wrong? It depends on how close you are to what's being done. Okay? It depends on how essential you are to what's being done. Okay, now real briefly, because I def- don't, definitely don't have time to go over this, I gave you a separate section here on medical morality. Okay? And I can't get into all these details because this one's really, really big. Um, um, but, but some basic life presuppositions, basic presuppositions with medical morality that we have as Catholics. Um, stewardship versus dominion. We say that life is a gift from God. Only God has dominion over it. Okay? That basically means we don't deliberately take human life. It's sacred because of its origin and because of its destination. Okay? Human life is not our own. It comes from God and it's going back to God. Okay? Um, governing life issues, there is a non-absolute duty to preserve human life. <coughs> There can't be an absolute duty to preserve human life. Let's talk about triage. You ever know what triage is? You're in a war zone. There's just been an explosion. There's one doctor and there's 20 dying patients. The doctor can't possibly help all the patients. Is it immoral for him to look at all the patients, take a look at their wounds, look at which ones that he possibly can save, then go back to the ones that he possibly can save, and, I don't know, consider um, their other circumstances, uh, like their age or whether they have children or not. The answer is he can and, and he should. He's not killing anybody, see? He's trying to preserve life. But he doesn't have a, there's no, there can't be an absolute duty to preserve human life because it's impossible. So far, so good? But we do have an absolute duty not to kill an innocent human being. This is why we don't have abortion or infanticide or murder or, or, murder or euthanasia or suicide. Okay? Those are just a couple governing life issues, a couple principles. Another one is what we call totality and integrity. Um, you can lose an arm or a leg or an eye or something else uh, to preserve the proper functioning of the whole. Um, um, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't do this for anything other than to preserve the proper functioning of the whole or it would be a misuse of what the human being is. Okay? Totality and integrity. You don't sacrifice a lower part except, to, except for, um, to save life or to preserve the proper functioning of a person. Okay. Um, 
the right to informed consent. I don't need to get into that one too much. Uh, you, you have a, 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 a judgment um, in conscience to make. You have a right to know the truth. If not, you should uh, designate people to make this decision for you. I've got many people who have designated myself to be there, um, uh, to, have, to have durable power of attorney to make their, uh, to, to make their medical decisions for you. Um, in making medical decisions, defining our efforts to preserve life, there's, there's three basic criteria, okay? Readily available, real benefit to the patient, no excessive burden. And these are the things that you want to ask when deciding whether to give somebody a medical treatment or not. Um, is it readily available? This, in our case, is pretty much always yes. All of our medical treatments, in fact, we could drive up to Johns Hopkins and we've got everything in the whole world, and it's readily available. But that might not necessarily be the case if you're in Zambia. Some treatment might not be available. The real question to ask is, if, is it of real benefit to the patient? Does the procedure do what it was supposed to do? Here's an example of a procedure that would not do what it's supposed to do. You could give somebody medically-assisted nutrition and hydration, that is to say feeding tubes, and the only thing it does is feed the cancer. The patient doesn't benefit. You wouldn't be obliged to do any such thing. Um, another one is, does it have an excessive physical, psychological, or even sometimes monetary burden? And there's a lot of subjectivity there, okay? Um, I had a gr my, my granddad was undergoing treatment at the age of 80-something, and there was some treatment in which they had to have some bag literally hanging out of his side, draining a kidney, literally. And he was just like, you know what? I just can't take it. And it was a terrible psychological burden to him. That would be considered an excessive burden, okay? What you, what you don't want to do, though, um, is make judgments um, uh, um, without knowing a, a medical diagnosis. So all these medical procedures, they're always very informed. You want to have a doctor say, tell you what will happen if the procedure is carried out and what will happen as a consequence. Um, and and you, can, you, you can make a decision as to whether that's going to be a, a physical or a psychological burden or whether it's in real benefit to the patient. Somebody who's, I don't know, in their advanced in years might not want to undergo chemotherapy. They might want to allow... Um, uh, the natural dying process to take its, to take its course. Uh, how somebody who's maybe in their 40s probably should undergo chemotherapy. They've got decades of life left to live. Okay? Um, but if it's not readily available, if it's, not if, it, if, it's, if it's not a real benefit to the patient, or if it's not uh, an, ex an excessive burden, we'd say that's morally optional. Okay? But if it is readily available, a real benefit to the patient, and it's not an excessive burden, we'd call it uh, morally obligatory. It'd be ordinary means. Okay. Now, I think one of the best um, rules of thumb for you, if you're thinking about medical morality, is uh, be very careful of living wills. Here's why. Living wills specify medical procedures in the absence of a medical diagnosis. You, you, so somebody will say something like, no tubes. Well, I got news for you. If you, if, you have, if, 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 you, if you have tubes, and the tubes get you better, and you get another decade and a half of life, don't, don't say no tubes in the absence of a medical diagnosis. Ask the doctor what will happen if tubes are put in. So rather than having a living will, setting things in stone, have a durable power of attorney. Have somebody you know who can make a readily informed decision for you. Okay? Then have that person be the one who talks to the doctor and makes reasonable decisions about um, whether this is really going to benefit you. Okay? They know you. They know what's an excessive burden. And let me very briefly dis dis describe financial burdens, because a financial burden can be an excessive burden. I hate to describe things in terms of dollars and cents, but it can come down to that. And here's where it would. 
when the financial burden becomes so great that basic necessities are being denied, okay, I don't know, let's just say baby can't have food, new shoes, can't pay the rent. I mean, that, that's when, it, when basic necessities are being denied, that's when finances can actually become a factor. Okay? Um, but hopefully that's not the case. For most people I've ever seen, it's come down to this question, a psychological or physical burden. And there's a great latitude of subjectivity on your part for that. But my, my best advice for people on medical morality is um, please have a real living human being make these decisions with your, with your, with your will, um, knowing you and knowing, your, and knowing your wishes with informed medical diagnosis. I really think that's the best way, um, that's the best way to, to, uh, to talk about it. Uh, real briefly, I'm going to skip euthanasia because I think you can learn it on your own. Organ donation. Um, organ donation is, is fine, but there's a few criteria that you want to keep in mind. The person who determines death can't be a member of the transplant team. That's a conflict of interest. Okay. Um, um, again, following the whole principle of totality and integrity, uh, you know, you don't want to um, sacrifice something that, that you need. Um, but I think the most important, but the most important thing is uh, that, that the designation of death uh, is objective, um, and that and that somebody isn't killed in the process of donating an organ. That's when that's when it becomes morally that's when it becomes morally doubtful. But you know, if if, uh, if you can be morally certain that, that, that that's not going to happen, then then organ donation becomes a fine thing. Now, m- medical morality is extremely complicated, uh, and I, I can't possibly answer every question, but basic principles there to give you a general overview as well as my most general advice. That's all I wanted to accomplish this evening. And as far as morality is concerned, the number one thing that I wanted you to walk away with is, the, is basically the understanding that what we teach and, and we, well, what we believe as Catholics really is for our good and for the good of others. And, it, and it's for real, and real human flourishing. Believe me, you can splice these issues backwards and forwards um, uh, and, and my intention is not to answer every potential question here, but rather just to give you general guidelines to, to help give you that basic understanding. We'd be here for another six months if I tried to answer every question. Okay, so that is that is a basic understanding of Catholic morality.